Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, higher education professional and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. Today, I want to shine a light on a deeply troubling issue, dating and domestic violence among college students. This vulnerability becomes stark when young adults navigate relationships without the compass of prior experience. Think about it, this stage of life is often labeled in academic research as emerging adulthood, a time when they're not quite kids, but not fully adults either, and they're just trying to figure things out. In this episode, I unravel the complexities surrounding this vulnerable age group through the story of 18-year-old college freshman Alexandra Kogut, who, for over a year, was in a seemingly picture-perfect relationship with 21-year-old Clayton Whittemore. While their friends and family perceived their relationship as flawless, the reality behind closed doors was far from it. Eventually, Alex and Clayton's relationship took the darkest of turns, which revealed the silent struggles of dating violence, a reality that would ultimately claim a young life. This episode is titled, Should Have Known, The Murder of Alex Kogut. So without further ado, let's get started. who more commonly went by Alex, grew up in the village of New Hartford, New York, which is located in central New York, just west of Utica. In high school, Alex was a member of the girls' swim team, which is how she met Clayton Whittemore, who was also a high school athlete in New Hartford. The two began dating when Alex was still in high school, but Clayton had already graduated and went on to attend college, so he was two years older than her. Clayton had been a standout hockey player in high school, and after he graduated in 2010, he spent a season playing for a college prep team in Florida where he was the star player and the primary scorer. Regardless, while Alex finished high school and Clayton went on to attend Utica College, the two continued dating. By all accounts from Alex and Clayton's friends and family, the two were smitten with each other and appeared truly happy and content in their relationship. In fact, Alex's friends even said that she considered herself lucky to be with such a brawny, attractive, popular guy. And Alex's family fell in love with Clayton, too. They even grew to consider him part of their family. After Alex graduated high school in 2012, she went on to attend the college at Brockport, a state school in western New York, but she and Clayton made a go of a long-distance relationship. As soon as Alex arrived on campus for her freshman year, she began having the time of her life. She was making new friends, attending classes, and she even joined the swim team in college as well. 
Alex was just truly embracing all that college had to offer. Then, not long after moving into McLean Hall, a dormitory on campus, Alex met Samantha Turner, who lived down the hall in the same dorm, and the two became instant best friends, nearly inseparable. A little over a month into the semester, on Friday, September 28, 2012, Samantha was planning to go home for the weekend while Alex was anxiously awaiting a visit from Clayton, her boyfriend of over a year and a half. At around 3 p.m. that Friday, Alex went down the hall to Samantha's room so the two could say their goodbyes, you know, since they both had different plans for the weekend. In an episode of Dateline on NBC, Samantha explained that it was just like any other day. The two laughed and talked, and Alex even borrowed three shirts and a pair of shoes from Samantha's closet to wear that weekend while Clayton was in town. A little later that day, before Clayton was supposed to arrive, Alex had a swim team meeting, which actually ran longer than expected so long that Clayton got to campus before it ended. Realizing that she was keeping him waiting, Alex sent a text to Clayton at 4.49 p.m. on September 28, 2012. The text read, quote, Please don't kill me. I'm so, so sorry. I'm sorry. End quote. Clayton replied with just two words, no worries. After Alex's team meeting wrapped up and she was finally able to see Clayton, he greeted her with a care package that her parents had sent with him to give to Alex. Actually, Clayton and Alex's parents were so close that they had also given him gas money for the two-and-a-half-hour trip from Utica to Brockport. After this, the two stayed in Alex's dorm for a couple of hours to catch up and spend some time alone. Then they made their way to dinner, and eventually they ended up at a party, which was either on campus or near campus, but nothing that I found really specified that. As they were walking back to Alex's dorm from that party, though, they were stopped by two campus police officers, Michael Johnson and Lieutenant Daniel Vassil. The officers noticed that Clayton was carrying an open container in his hand, more specifically a beer can, so the officers requested to see his ID. During this encounter, Officer Johnson explained to Clayton that a city ordinance in place made it illegal for Clayton to carry the open container, so they had to issue him a ticket. However, both officers said Clayton was very cooperative. He was polite and cordial. After issuing him the ticket, though, the officer said Clayton and Alex turned to walk away, but they witnessed Clayton toss the beer can onto the ground instead of throw it away in the trash can. This caused the officers to approach Clayton once again, and they told him that he could get an additional fine for throwing it on the ground instead of the trash. So once again, Clayton obliged and picked it up. After this, however, the officers witnessed something strange. Instead of turning and walking away with Alex, Clayton crossed the street, leaving Alex alone. Officer Johnson explained to reporter Andrea Canning on Dateline, quote, that's when I saw him cross the street here. And at the same time, the female stayed on this side of the street. And then they both continued to walk on separate sides of the street, end quote. So, yeah, that was odd. But the officers didn't think too much about it, and, you know, they went on about their night. Alex and Clayton went on about their night, too. Shortly after this, at around 12.13 a.m., Alex posted one final cryptic tweet on Twitter. It read simply, should have known. A few minutes later, at 12.17 a.m., Alex swiped her key card to enter her dorm with Clayton. Meanwhile, between the hours of midnight and 2.30 a.m., Alex's mom became incredibly worried when she couldn't reach her daughter. You see, the two had been texting throughout the day because they had a super close relationship. If one of them texted the other, they would usually get a response rather quickly. 
on this weekend, Becky and Mark Kogut, Alex's parents, had recently gone out of town on vacation or for a conference or something, but they were out of town. And that night, Becky had texted Alex pictures of their amazing hotel room, but Alex never replied back. So Becky became frantic. Call it a mother's intuition, but she knew something wasn't right with Alex. So Becky started calling everyone she could think of to try and figure out where Alex was because, like I said, Alex was not responding to her calls or her texts. She first called Samantha, Alex's best friend at college, in the early morning hours of Saturday, September 29th. Samantha told Dateline, quote, She was scared. She didn't know where Alex was, what she was doing. She had a sign. I don't know how. Something was wrong, end quote. Samantha went on to explain that Alex's mom was absolutely beside herself because she couldn't get in touch with Alex. But Samantha informed Becky that she didn't know where Alex was since she was at home for the weekend rather than on campus. Finally, at 2.42 a.m. on September 29th, Becky called campus police and requested that they do a wellness check on her daughter. The two officers, Johnson and Basile, who had stopped Alex and Clayton earlier in the night, responded to the wellness check. But it's important to note that at this point, they had no idea they were going to the dorm room of the same young lady they had seen with Clayton earlier. When they got there, the door was closed, so they knocked to see if anybody answered. Nobody did, so they tried the door handle to see if it was locked. It wasn't, so they stepped inside. But y'all, they were in for the shock and dismay of a lifetime. They walked inside room 108 of McLean Hall to find a young woman lying on the floor, face down, her long, dark hair covered in blood. Actually, the whole room appeared to be ransacked, and blood spatter was everywhere. It was on the bed, the inside of the door, and even on a pillow on the floor. They also noticed bloody footprints at the scene. According to an article by Jill Cedarstrom for Oxygen.com, officers quickly took note that the girl lying on the floor was deceased and that she had suffered a brutal end. Officer Johnson said, quote, It just seemed that something really bad happened there that night. We don't see that level of violence that often, end quote. Now, the thing is, though, they couldn't tell if the victim was Alex or not. In fact, they were under the impression that the girl on the floor was not Alex because of that long, dark hair. You see, Alex had light blonde hair, and whoever was on the floor was so badly beaten beyond recognition that police began a working theory that Alex must be missing and that this person must be her roommate. In other words, they began immediately working the case under the assumption that one girl was dead, perhaps Alex's roommate, and another girl was missing. Alex herself. But while they were in Alex's dorm room, something else caught their eye. They recognized the young man in several of the pictures as Clayton Whittemore, the guy they had stopped and issued a ticket to earlier that night. But the girl on the floor, she did not look like the girl they had seen with Clayton earlier, and she definitely didn't look like Alex in the pictures with Clayton that were displayed in the dorm room. So who was this girl on the floor? Where was Alex? And more importantly, where in the hell was Clayton Whittemore? Those were the three questions that police knew they quickly needed to find the answers to. And y'all, let me tell you, the next two hours of this timeline are a whirlwind, and there were so many possibilities as to what could have happened. Lieutenant Vasil said, quote, 
maybe there was an altercation between roommates. Maybe possibly Alex and Clayton were on the run and this was the roommate that was on the ground. Maybe Alex was abducted by Clayton. Maybe Clayton had hurt the roommate, end quote. And Officer Johnson said that they had difficulty piecing together what exactly happened because of how incredibly violent the crime was. Johnson said, quote, and there were so many things that didn't make sense in the room that it was very hard to just say, okay, this is what happened, you know, case closed, end quote. It wouldn't be long, though, before some answers started trickling in. First, a 911 call at 3 a.m., five counties away in Oneida County. That call was from Clayton Whittemore's father, Scott Whittemore. According to Oxygen.com, Scott called 911 and said, quote, Yes, uh, my name is Scott Whittemore. My son Clayton just called me and told me he killed somebody. He's talking about killing himself, too, end quote. After this, investigators spoke with Scott, I mean, obviously they had to get in touch with him, as well as Clayton's mom, Sandra, who were able to provide some details, but not all. However, it was a call from Clayton himself that would soon provide authorities with the answers they needed. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. At around 3.44 a.m., Clayton called 911 in Oneida County from the rest stop along the New York State Thruway. He proceeded to tell the dispatcher, quote, I'm turning myself in. Um, I just, I did something that I can't take back and just got to turn myself in, end quote. Soon after, two officers patrolling the thruway were called to respond. When they got to Clayton, he surrendered without incident, and the officers noticed bloodstains on his sneakers as well as blood on his hands. They arrested him on the spot within seconds. Meanwhile, back on campus, police were still trying to figure out who had been brutally murdered in Alex's room. Who was this Jane Doe? After some digging, they learned that it was not Alex's roommate because she had been staying somewhere else that night. When they finally got in touch with her, the roommate, they asked to speak with her in person, you know, so they could verify her identity. When they did speak with her, she informed them that she had actually been staying in another dorm room on campus. So investigators began going from door to door in McLean Hall, questioning the residents to see if they could help fill in any gaps. And y'all, they soon learned that Alex had recently dyed her hair brown. Y'all, the young woman they found brutally beaten and deceased in room 108 was, in fact, Alexandra Kogut, the beautiful, bubbly, happy Alex, who less than 24 hours ago had been so full of life. Now, obviously, the next step in the investigation was to interview Clayton to try and find out exactly what happened and how it happened. And when they did speak with Clayton, they got all the answers they needed in grisly detail. He told them how the couple had gone to dinner that night and then on to that party, and he said they both drank moderately. But while at the party, Clayton said he began to feel disrespected by Alex. He said, quote, when I'd say anything to her, you know, she'd like raise her voice or something. But if anybody else said anything to her, she'd be all smiley and giggly, end quote. Then, when Clayton had that run-in with campus police and got the open container ticket, it only fueled his anger, which is why he and Alex ended up walking separately back to her dorm. 
Back inside Alex's room then, Clayton said the two continued to argue, and he said Alex brought up old arguments and prior allegations of Clayton cheating. He said Alex began to get physical with him and push him, which further enraged him. He said, quote, all of a sudden, I just snapped. I hit her back, end quote. Oxygen.com reported that Clayton continued to savagely beat his girlfriend beyond recognition. Eventually, he recalled, her breathing became labored, and he decided, much like, quote unquote, watching an animal suffer, he needed to put her out of her misery. Because, he said, quote, you know, I was someone you love. I'm not going to watch them sit there and suffer. That's why I did it, end quote. And, to make matters worse, he said he didn't even think about getting help or calling an ambulance once he realized just how bad he had beaten her. Nope. Instead, he chose to finish her off. Clayton Whittemore was charged with second-degree murder, to which he pleaded not guilty, and he went to trial nearly two years later in May of 2014. And I know what you're thinking. Not guilty? Um, he just confessed in detail. How on earth could he plead not guilty? Well, he had an explanation that his defense attorneys eventually revealed at the trial. But first, let's start with the prosecution and the case they presented against him. They argued that Clayton was a ticking time bomb, a killer years in the making. They said his anger had been building for years, and on this particular night, his anger was fueled by alcohol. They also showed that he had established a pattern of violent behavior. For example, they called two different witnesses to the stand to speak about specific experiences they had with Clayton. First, his ex-girlfriend, a woman by the name of Melinda, testified about a particular incident when they were dating. She explained, quote, When we were fighting in a parking lot, he had choked me, and he kind of held on for a few seconds. I thought he might not stop, but eventually he did. I locked him out of his car to cool down, and he did. And I kind of blew over it. It was scary, end quote. The other witness was a former teammate of Clayton's, a guy named Hunter, who played with Clayton on that college prep team in Florida. While there, Hunter and Clayton both stayed with the same host family, and Hunter took the stand to describe a specific situation he recalled after Clayton had drank a six-pack of beer. Hunter explained, quote, He walks in the kitchen, and he grabs a knife, and he raises it above his head. He looks like he was possessed. He just took a step towards us, and our host mom sees what's happening, and she's like, Clayton, put the knife down, end quote. The defense, on the other hand, they didn't dispute the fact that Clayton killed Alex, and they did not dispute that his anger had been bottled up for years. But still, the defense argued that it wasn't murder. Instead, they said he was guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Why? Well, they said because he was under the influence of extreme emotional disturbance when he snapped and killed Alex. Essentially, they argued he was a victim as well. To prove their case, they brought up the 911 call Clayton made when he turned himself in. During one part of the call, Clayton told the dispatcher, quote, you know, I'm turning myself in for what I did. The man who called you is the man who should turn himself in, end quote. Clayton also told the 911 dispatcher, quote, I saw it all. I watched my brother get beat with a baseball bat by my own father. I watched my own father break my sister's nose, throw my own mother down to the ground, and beat her. I watched him try to shove a remote controller down the throats of all his children for fingerprints on his car, end quote. 
During the trial, it was also revealed that Clayton had sent a text to Alex's phone just minutes before he was arrested. The text read in part, quote, Sorry to the family and you. Nothing will ever fix or undo what I did. I became my father, but worse. End quote. Clayton's sister also took the stand and supported her brother's story. And an expert psychiatrist testified that, in their expert opinion, Clayton did appear to be suffering from extreme emotional disturbance and that he did snap in the dorm when he killed Alex. But after three weeks of testimony and closing arguments, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Ultimately, Clayton Whittemore was given the maximum sentence of 25 years to life for the second-degree murder of Alex Kogut. Although Alex's mom, Becky, did not attend the trial, she followed it closely, and she did attend Clayton's sentencing hearing in August of 2014. According to an article in the Democrat and Chronicle, Alex's mom delivered an emotional statement at the sentencing hearing where she called the family of her daughter's killer, quote-unquote, pure evil. She accused them, Clayton's family, of being complicit in Alex's death because they did not stop the alleged abuse. She said, quote, Clayton's father groomed him to be a killer. Anyone in the community that knew what was happening in that house and didn't do anything should be in jail alongside Clayton, end quote. Becky Kogut addressed Clayton as well. To him, she said in part, quote, Alex will not graduate college. We will not see her marry. She will never have children. You have robbed us of so much, end quote. During her statement, Becky also revealed that she had spoken to Clayton the night of the murder. Remember how Becky had a premonition that something was wrong with Alex, so she began calling everyone she could think of for answers? Well, naturally, she also tried calling Clayton numerous times before he finally picked up the phone at around 2.30 a.m., before Becky called campus police. When he answered, he straight up lied to Becky and told her that Alex was sleeping. Becky explained how, at one point, she fell to her knees because she physically and spiritually and emotionally just felt Alex leave her. Something else that was revealed after the trial, not during it, was more evidence of just how troublesome Clayton and Alex's so-called perfect relationship was, behind closed doors, that is. This evidence was in the form of nearly 30 voicemails from Clayton that Alex had saved on her phone. They were all of an aggressive, controlling nature. However, for some reason, they were not allowed to be submitted as evidence in court. Still, they speak volumes. The assistant district attorney for Monroe County at the time, Meredith Vaca, read some of these voicemails with profanity redacted on an episode of Dateline. One of them said, quote, I'll kill you the next time I see you. You're a slut and a skank, so don't call me. I am sick. I am sick of you, end quote. Here's the thing, though. Alex's family and friends never knew any of these voicemails existed whenever she was alive. They didn't know Clayton talked to her like that. They never knew there was a problem with their relationship at all because the two seemed so happy. Essentially, there were zero red flags and no outward warning signs. Dating and domestic violence among college students is a serious issue that affects roughly 20 to 30 percent of all college students in the U.S. According to a journal article in Contemporary Issues and Education Research by Rosemary Iconis, more than one-fifth of the undergraduate dating population are physically abused by their dating partners, 
and an even greater percentage are psychologically abused. Considering these alarming statistics, particularly after Alex's death, the college at Brockport opened a center to raise awareness about dating violence. And one of Alex's friends and teammates, Paige Whitney, started an initiative of her own as well. With the help of her mother, Sandra Whitney, Paige started Purple Pinkies, a charitable foundation that raises awareness about dating and domestic violence among college students. The foundation also encourages women to show solidarity by painting one of their pinky fingernails purple. Paige, who was Alex's swim teammate in both high school and college, reflected on what the color purple now means to her, which is not only the official color of domestic violence awareness, but it also just happened to be Alex's favorite color too. Paige said, quote, For the rest of my life, whenever I see purple, I will think of her. Whenever I hear a story of any type of domestic violence, I will think of her and I will not stop telling her story, end quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 64. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram. Also, remember, I'm trading reviews for episodes. (laughs) For every 50 reviews I get on Apple Podcasts, I will drop a bonus chronicle. Now, I got a couple more over the past two weeks, so keep them coming. We're getting closer to a bonus chronicle. Also, also, y'all don't forget that on January 1st, Campus Crime Chronicles will officially be a weekly podcast. So I am going to take some time off for Christmas and the holidays. So the next episode of Campus Crime Chronicles will not drop until January 1st. But on that day, starting that week, I will become a weekly podcast. So you'll only have to wait one week between episodes. I'm really excited about this, you guys. I think it's kind of gradually the next step. And now that I'm done with my PhD, I can finally do this. And I really just have more time to pour into the podcast. And I'm so excited about that. Um, Also, don't forget, I will have a Patreon launching on January 1st as well, where you will have two tiers. And for $5 a month, you will get an extra podcast episode. You'll be able to listen to episodes ad-free. And you'll get early access to episodes, like if I have a part one and a part two. So you guys be looking for that. I'm really excited. 2024 is the year of Campus Crime Chronicles. So y'all stay tuned. Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again on January 1st for the next Chronicle. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.